Good morning, everyone. Ah, thanks. I wasn't expecting the response. Uh, uh, good to see you all. I've been away for a couple of, couple of Sundays, and it's really nice to be back. Um, I was in Donegal with a few guys that were uh, in, my, in my class I studied with, and that was just a really good time. Um, and now it's uh, back to porridge this week. Um, but it's good, it's good, it's good, good, good to be back. Um, we're starting a new series this week, so we went from literally reading... Uh, for about five minutes in Esther, three chapters at a time, to reading four verses, um, because we're studying the book of James. Uh, if, you, if you're new to Village, I don't know if any of you are, but we just take books of the Bible and work our way through, because of what Claire said, it's God's Word, He speaks to us. Uh, sometimes we'll do a more topical series, um, and in fact, just to give you a bit of a roadmap of where we're going, because roadmaps are a thing now, aren't they? Thanks, Boris Johnson, for roadmaps. Um, uh, we're going to go into the book of James today, and we're going to stay there right through the summer until the beginning of October. Apart from there's going to be a few Sundays throughout the summer, we'll have one-off sermons, and, and then in, in August and September, we'll have a couple of uh, a guest speakers coming in, which will be nice because I'm going to take some time off, um, and I'll fill you all in on that close to the time. And then starting in October, we're going to spend six weeks, six Sundays, where our sermons are going to be based on our three-year vision for our church, um, specifically looking at the areas of, of abiding in Jesus, um, generosity, like Travis already mentioned, generosity and giving, and mission, and church planting, that kind of thing. Um, so uh, loving Jesus, loving each other, and, and, and loving our city. And that's going to take us all the way up to Advent um, in November, and we, we love we love Advent and Village. Um, so that's just to let you know where we're going. Uh, but today we're in the book of James. But before we get into James, do keep your Bibles open. But before we get into James, I'm going to pray for us and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, uh, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it is living and active. We're thankful uh, that it's not just a, a collection of ancient writings. It's a collection of, of ancient writings that were inspired by your Spirit. And it's still alive um, today. Um, Father, we're your children and we need you. Um, life is hard. Um, we want to follow you. We want to be faithful to you. And so we need your help. Speak to us, your children, this morning, Lord. Give us um, obedient and faithful ears to hear what you're saying to us this morning. And through it all, may Jesus be glorified. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, I don't know if you find this, but I certainly find this to be true. There are certain types of the certain types, certain parts of the Bible that we, we naturally want to read uh, over others, right? Um, there's a lot of uh, parts of the Bible that we naturally stay away from. So you probably have parts of your Bible that you go back to again and again, and there maybe have some highlighter on them, some notes, all that kind of stuff. And then there's maybe places like uh, Leviticus, where the pages are still stuck together since you got the Bible, um, because you've literally never opened them. Um, we tend to ignore the tough parts of the Bible, don't we? especially the parts of the Bible that confront us and challenge us and, and, and tell us that we have to change, <laughs> tell us that, that our lives should change. That's certainly what I tend to do anyway. Um, the book of James is one of those parts of the Bible, one of these parts of the Bible that is going to challenge us, it's going to confront us, it's going to confront some things about ourselves, about the way we live, uh, the way we live, uh, the way we live. And, and undoubtedly, over the coming weeks, as we work our way through this book, um, we're going to be challenged. We're going to be confronted. It's going to make us uncomfortable. Um, the book of James is, is one of 21 letters in, in, the, 
in the New Testament. So most of the New Testament is actually letters written from apostles to other Christians. And this, this book, this letter, was written by James, who is the brother of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus had the same mother, Mary. Obviously, Jesus didn't have an earthly daddy. James, his brother, did. Now, the interesting thing is that James, he doesn't, mention, uh, he doesn't mention this in the letter. He doesn't start by playing the don't you know who I am card. He's like, hey, I'm, I'm the boss's brother. You better listen to me. He doesn't say that at all. Um, but we know he's the brother of James from other parts of the Bible. And what we do know about James is that, that he um, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, and it seems to be with that authority that he's writing to these Christians. Because this, this letter is written to these Jewish Christians who used to be part of the church of Jerusalem. But when Stephen, you can go back and read this in Acts chapter 4, when, when Stephen is, uh, one of the Christians there is, is martyred, he's killed for his faith, uh, these Christians are scattered. They have to, they have to flee, they're in danger. Um, and so they're, they're spread across Judea and Samaria. Um, and this is, uh, so you can imagine, like if you guys were all scattered uh, across the rest of Ireland and then I was writing a letter to you, that's, I'm not saying I'm an apostle like that. I'm not saying that at all, just to be clear. Um, but that's kind of what's going on there. This is their pastor who's, who's writing to these people. They're people who, uh, Christians who have known pain and suffering. They're, they're people who are still facing incredibly hard times. And so no wonder then that, that James begins his letter by launching straight into this theme of, of trials and suffering. Now, if you've ever gone through any times of trial in your life, maybe it's the death of somebody you love, I know a lot of us have, have faced that. Maybe you've had financial trouble. Uh, maybe you've had a broken heart. I'd say a lot of us have had that. Um, maybe you're young and you're still trying to figure out how to get through life and, and, and everything seems like a trial. Well, you know in those times that it's, uh, it's, it's in these times that our faith is put to the test. It's in times of trial and suffering that we find out whether or not our faith is genuine. When the rubber of our faith hits the road of life, we're forced to face up to how faith impacts our lives. And this is one of the main reasons why we want to study James at this time. We live in a time when uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to be a Christian, isn't it? Like to practically uh, have our faith outworked in our lives is becoming more and more challenging for us. Um, you might remember when we studied Esther, um, just finished last week, that we had these two lenses that we read the story with. Uh, well, likewise, we have two lenses here for the, for the book of James. Uh, firstly, we, we study James to examine the relationship between faith and works. That's why we've called this series Faith Works. There you go. Thanks, Dan, for that. Faith Works. Looks great. Um, the, the, James is, is a book that confronts this idea, this tendency we have to, to separate our faith from our real lives, don't we? That's what we want to do. Just give, me an, just give me Jesus on a Sunday and then let me live the rest of my life how I want to. That, that's really what we want to do, isn't it? We, sure, we want to read our Bible sometimes and maybe pray the odd time. We want Jesus to live up in here but not really live out in our lives. The temptation is to, to just keep our faith locked up inside and, and never let it affect how we actually live. And sometimes we even live, uh, end up living a, a kind of double life, don't we? Um, we have our Christian life, um, which is, you know, when we come to uh, the, the, the church gathering like today, 
Or, or maybe when you meet a friend for coffee and you open your Bible together. Or, or maybe when your MC gets together for a family dinner. And then we have our real life. Where we go to work or um, you know, we, we go and play sport. Whatever it is we do. But the book of James absolutely smashes this idea entirely. James says, for the, for the Christian, there, there is no such thing as the double life. There's no such thing as a spiritual life and then your secular life. These two categories just don't exist. If you trust in Jesus, then all of your life is a Christian life. Every part of it. James is saying faith and action go hand in hand. In fact, uh, James refers to the word faith 14 times in this, in this letter. But out of 108 verses in this entire book, 59 of them are commands. Commands to action, telling us to do something. James is very much exploring uh, the, how uh, faith and works go together. But the second reason for studying James is that it allows us to explore how our faith impacts our city and, and the world around us, right? Uh, another aspect we see in this book is that faith not only acts in our lives, but, but faith is actually effective in the world. And, and this is something that we often overlook as Christians or maybe even feel embarrassed about or don't believe truly. But, but our faith has something important to say to the world around us. The book of James, I think, speaks directly to our mission statement for, uh, for village, loving Jesus, loving each other, and loving our city as we join God in the renewal of all things. That's why we're, we're studying this book, is then we gear up to look at this three-year vision for our church later on in the year. This book addresses all kinds of, of practical issues, trials like we're going to see today, poverty, riches, materialism, favoritism, social justice, how we speak, boasting, making plans for the future, praying, what to do when you're sick. All these practical issues, uh, this, this book tells us how our faith meets these things. James shows us that our faith has real things to say to our society, to, to the people around us. And we need to believe that. And I hope that through studying this book, we can, we can see that, that when your friend who isn't a Christian has a problem, that you can bring the wisdom of Scripture to bear in that. Uh, some scholars even refer to the book of James as the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's full of wisdom. Our faith in Christ gives us good and true and wise and important things to say and display to our city our neighbors, to our friends, to our colleagues. Our faith is good for Belfast. <laughs> Jesus is good for Belfast, right? Do we believe that? And I want us to understand, that, and I want me to understand too, that, that faith moves us as followers of Christ to radical obedience that, that brings his kingdom to the world around us. And this is exciting for me. James helps us to do this. And so as we go through this book, we're, we're going to examine the relationship between faith and works and also exploring how our faith impacts the city and the world around us. Now, one of the things I, I, I often think about when I read these letters in the New Testament, the epistles, they're called the epistles, which just means letter, by the way. Um, I sometimes think about who actually received them, right? Uh, of course, they were mo most certainly read out in front of the church gathering like this. So the church gathers probably in someone's house or sometimes in public places, places like we do. Um, 
And so probably one of the church leaders, one of the elders, gets up and reads a letter like this. But who actually received, you know, someone had to receive that letter. It was someone was the first person to read this letter from James. Maybe it was delivered to the house of the, of the, of the, the couple where the church met. Uh, you know, maybe it, probably a house church. And maybe the letter gets delivered. So, uh, you know, I love getting FaceTime uh, or a text from um, churches that we partner with in Turkey, for example, or, or in, in the States. But imagine how much more exciting it was for whoever received this letter way back in the time before uh, instantaneous communication. The letter drops through the letterbox. And one of the kids picks it up, because that's what happens in our house. I don't know why kids are obsessed with the postman, but they are. Pick it up, and you have to find, where's the post? Um, And then mom notices the postmark straight away. And she's instantly excited, and she shouts down, Oh, honey, this is a letter from Jerusalem where we used to live, our family. I actually think it's from James. It looks like James's handwriting. And her husband comes around and he says, well, what does it say? And she's like, well, give me a minute. I haven't even opened it yet. Because um, men are impatient like that. And then her, as she begins to read, her smile changes uh, to a frown. And her husband's like, come on, what's he saying? What, what's, what's he saying? And she says, he's saying, if you're facing hardships, Rejoice. Not even a, how are you doing? Not a, I hope you're well. Or tell me how things are at the church. Just straight in with this. Doesn't he know what we've been going through? He knows we've been made homeless. He knows we've been scattered. He knows our family's been broken up. He knows we're in poverty. He knows we're being oppressed and, and persecuted. Doesn't he care how hard that's been for us? What does he mean by telling us to rejoice? But in actual fact... James was a man who knew suffering. He was someone who who faced plenty of hardship and suffering and trials. In fact, not long after this, James would actually go on to die for his faith in Christ. He, like Stephen, and most of the apostles would be martyred for his faith in Christ. Not just dying because this guy was his brother, but because he was his Lord. And what he says to these, his brothers and sisters who he loves, you can imagine him laboring over this letter. And he says out of love because he knows the truth of who his Savior is and what he is about. It's precisely because he knows Jesus and knows the suffering of his brothers and sisters and because he loves them that he says what he says. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you go through hard times in life. In the version we read, the ESV, it says, count it all joy, my brothers. And maybe a little note beside that, because actually this, this word here, it's brothers and sisters. It means brothers and sisters. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you go through hard times in life. Now instantly, this gets our back up a wee bit, doesn't it? It doesn't sit quite well with us. What does it mean to to count it all joy when we're facing trials? What kind of a maniac does that? So how can we receive this well? How can we understand this? And how can we put this into practice in our, our lives? Well, the first thing we need to notice is that trials are certainty for Christians. There's no escape in trials. Trials are a certainty for Christians. Notice what James says in verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you, meet, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's so striking that he doesn't say, 
uh, if you meet trials of various kinds. It says when. Trials are a certainty. If you haven't been through any hardship in your life, you will. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. But for followers of the way of Jesus, we can be certain of trials. The Christian's life is a life characterized by trials. Now, these trials can be hard experiences of any kind. Pain, sickness, suffering, disappointments, heartbreak, letdowns, betrayal. What James is referring to here is all the things in life that are hard to deal with. Not just physical pain, but but maybe mental pain, maybe emotional pain, maybe spiritual pain. And and it's not that we should enjoy suffering, not at all. But what he's saying is that that it's still, in the middle of these things, it is possible to, to rejoice, to be a rejoicing Christian. In the middle of the hardest hardships, it is still possible for us to praise God and to have joy in Him. And there's a couple of things that, that He wants us to know about the trials in life. Firstly, He wants us to see that, that these things are tests. Verse 3, He says, For you know that the testing of your faith. This word testing here in the original language has, has this idea of a, of a proven genuineness. So you know when, um, you, know when uh, you ever watch those like... Um, you guys get a really good insight into what I watch on TV, by the way. Um, you ever you watch those like pawn shows where they bring stuff in, they value them, and uh, the guy gets out the you know the little magnifying glass to see if the jewel's genuine. Um, that's this idea, testing to see if this jewel is real or not. In other words, James is saying uh, these trials in life happen to you so that your faith might come through the other side of the test, having been proved to be genuine. Like quality assurance in a product. So, so on, the, on the production line, uh, in the factory, products are tested to see if they are up to standard, to see if, if they are fit for purpose. The kind of testing that our faith, uh, of our faith that trials in our lives provide is this kind of test to be passed. Trials allow God to put a quality assurance stamp on our lives that we have been tested. Do you remember that God is creating in us a new creation? That if you are a believer in Jesus, he is creating a new, a new creation. He's doing away with the old and he's making something new. He's making you more like Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 10, we're going to come back to this later on as well. It tells us that we are his workmanship. He's like a master craftsman and he is making something out of us. And through the hardship on our lives, God is testing his workmanship to prove to us and to the world around us that his workmanship lasts. God stands by his work. But James also wants us to see that that trials come in in all shapes and sizes. Uh, These Christians that James is writing this letter to have, have gone through all kinds of trials. Some have lost their families. They've had to leave their homes in Jerusalem. Some of them are sick. Others are being persecuted. And one of the main themes through this letter is that they're obviously dealing with poverty. And we can expect this in our lives too. Trials come in all kinds of of forms. You know, an anomaly on a a baby scan or a a difficult phone call from the doctor or the uncertainty of, of 
of not knowing when you're going to get a job. We can expect trials in all kinds of forms. But this word various actually can mean complex as well. And this is often our experience, that, that not only are our hardships come out of nowhere, and not only are they of all kinds, but, but often our trials are just complicated and messy. And these are the, I think these are the, the hardest ones to, to deal with, aren't they? Complex situations that, that just don't seem to have any solution. Sometimes the hardest situations in life are the ones that we just can't seem to find any way out of. Interestingly, the, the word that, that James uses here, notice he says, um, he says, when you meet trials of various kinds, in verse 2. This, this word meet means to, to fall in with, to fall upon. Uh, it's exactly the same word that, that Luke uses when he records Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan. I don't know if you've heard this story, but Jesus tells this story of a, a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, and he says he, falls, he, fought, he fell upon a band of robbers. And these robbers beat him up and leave him for dead. He fell in with. He wasn't expecting it, nor was he prepared for it. And sometimes this is the way suffering and trials happen to us. Something comes out of the blue. An accident happens. We get a phone call and we're left thinking, what is this? Why is this happening? Have you ever had a, a time of trial in your life? No matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, where you're just thinking, I don't even know what to pray for in this situation. How can there be a solution to this? Well, James tells us here that, that, that even then, it's possible to have joy to have an inner joy. I think of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, they've, they've been arrested and, and thrown in prison because they were sharing the good news of Jesus. Um, they're actually put in the inner prison, in the very middle of the jail. Their feet are chained up in the stocks. There's no way out. It's complicated. It's hard. It's a time of trial. There's no way out. And then this, it tells us that at midnight, what do we find them doing? Middle of the night in the darkness, complaining to each other, grumbling that they're stuck in, in jail, worrying about what's going to happen next. No, at midnight, they're praying and singing hymns. See, they, they, had, they had joy in their trials. See, we as Christians, we can recognize that there is always something to rejoice in. Always. Yes, trials will come. That's a certainty. And they will come in all shapes and sizes. We can expect that as Christians. But even though we might not enjoy these trials, we can respond in joy. And that's our second point this morning. We can respond to our trials in joy. We can still rejoice in them because God has a purpose in them. Now, is James really saying that we're to be happy when hard things come along in our lives? Well, no, he's not. He's not saying that the trials of life are joyful, but he's saying that joy is the attitude we can have in our trials. There's something about followers of Jesus that means that, that even when we go through the hardships of life, that we are able to have a deep joy. We, we live in a time when the prevailing philosophy is that hardship is bad. That, that's, I, I think it's inescapable that all suffering is bad. And actually, I, I don't know, I'm not a philosopher, but I, when I think about these things sometimes, and I think that that, that's, that sentiment, that, that any hardship is bad, is where a lot of 
a lot of our modern attitudes come from. The, the idea that, that any kind of discomfort is to be avoided at all costs. So I feel slightly uncomfortable. Well, then I'm, I'm going to choose to do this other thing because any kind of discomfort is bad. And in fact, there are even people who, who call themselves Christians who would try to tell you that God never wants you to be sick or poor. And they tell you that all you have to do is, is name and claim your health and wealth. But this simply isn't true. It's God's will for us that, that we will from time to time go through hardship for our good. Remember, if you don't believe me, that, that James is, is writing this letter to predominantly poor Christians, a community of believers who are, who are going through hard times, and he's telling them to consider this great joy. And, and we find this difficult because we often mistake joy for happiness. We think those two things are the same, don't we? We think that joy and happiness are the same. And so we, we can think that, well, we have to walk around with big smiles in our face all the time. Hey, mate, how's it going? Yeah, pretty good. My granny died. Well, why are you smiling, you maniac? That's not what we have to do. We don't have to fake it. Trials don't usually bring smiles to our faces, and that's okay. You see, joy does not equate to happiness. Joy is not an emotion. It's a state of being. Uh, it's, it, joy is, is a state of being that's based on the deep, deep truth of who Jesus is. Uh, one commentator I read put it this way, and I thought this was a good sentence worth repeating. He said, joy is an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated thankful trust in God. Joy is a choice, isn't it? It's like a river that runs deep underground underneath a desert. Our joy is deep and sustains us when the times of trials come. And James says, count it all joy or consider it all joy. This is a command. It's to do with how we think, not with how we feel. So we can mourn and we can weep when the trials come. We don't need to, to stick a happy face on it. But we can still count our trials as joy. How do we do this? Well, listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, um, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. For you know. The reason we can count it as joy is because we know something, right? This is one of the themes running through this book. You know, therefore you do. <laughs> in fact, uh, it's, it's what we know that lets us obey. This is one of the bases of, of living in the way of Jesus, is, is what we know. We know, therefore we do. When we're, uh, when we're saturated in God's word, what, what we know in what he has done, we're, we're well placed to face trials of every kind. This is what the Bible is supposed to do, isn't it? The Bible is meant to be applied to our lives. We know the truth, so we live in the truth. And if we don't know the truth, then how can we live it? I think that's why we find Christian life so hard most of the time, because we don't spend enough time knowing the truth and learning the truth. We're, we're saturated with influencers on social media, or our favorite authors or filmmakers, or the voices of our favorite uh, uh, journalists or, or advertisers, or even just our own inner voices and the lies we tell ourselves. And maybe the only time we take in any of God's voices is whatever we, we hear on a Sunday morning. 
no wonder we find living in the, the way of Jesus so hard. It's like throwing a glass of water on a burning house and then wondering why the flames haven't gone out. We need to know so we can do. And, and what do we know? Well, in this case, we know that God is doing something for our good. We know that, that trials test our faith and this testing produces steadfastness. Now, steadfastness, that's an that's a unusual word for us, isn't it? It's not like we kind of use that much in, in our common speech. And, and so when I find a word like that, I kind of like to know where it came from and what it actually means and all that kind of stuff. But, but this word in the original language, it actually means to remain underneath, right? To stay underneath. It's, it's two, kind of two words smashed together, really, in Greek. To stay underneath. And I think this gives us a really helpful understanding of, of what James is getting at here. Let me explain. Um, last week, uh, a Scotsman, who's 27 years old, called Tom Stoltman became, uh, well, he won the World's Strongest Man competition. Name's not on his head. Like, this guy is a giant, 27 years old. Now, I don't know if you ever watch these contests on TV, but you should, because it's amazing what people can do with their bodies. But, um, and I'm mostly always impressed by the events where they have to lift these incredibly heavy weights over their heads. And one of my favorite events is the log press, which is basically just pressing a, a log over your head and locking your arms out. And Tom Stoltman actually holds the, the British record for the log press. He pressed 221 kilos, which is an insane amount of weight. Now, how is it that, that these guys can do this? How can they lift these incredibly heavy weights over their head? Not just anybody can do this. Like, I couldn't wake up tomorrow and say to Haley, darling, I think I'm going to have a go at the old uh, world's strongest man this week. Like that, that would be insane. She'd laugh at me and she'd be right to laugh at me. Even in my peak physical condition that I am. You're not meant to laugh at that, guys. The only reason these giant men can lift these extremely heavy weights is because they have had years of training and conditioning their bodies and their muscles. There is this process of years of, of, of repetitive pressure added over and over and over against their bodies so that over time they build up their strength and power. When, when Tom Stoltman lifts that log over his head, the only reason he can remain standing is because of his steadfastness. He has remained under the weight so that next time he has to do it, he can remain under the weight. Do you see how steadfastness works? It's a training. It's a building up. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're going through today, but no matter how hard the trial we're facing, we can take joy because it's training for the next trial we will face. In his love and mercy, God wants to make us able to stand firm under the weight. In Ephesians 6, um, you might know this as the, the, the armor of God passage. But in, the, in this passage, Paul tells us that, that we're actually at war with the devil himself, with the, with, the, with the authorities and powers of this world, he calls them. And what does he say? He says, listen, when the devil has thrown everything he has at you, remain standing, stay strong, stand firm. That's steadfastness. Now, maybe you feel like a pretty average Christian. Um, in fact, maybe you feel like a, a below-average Christian. I, I haven't done anything special. I'm, I'm not a great teacher or evangelist. I'm not very good at speaking out about my faith. I'm not very good at X, Y, and Z. Whatever it may be for you. 
Well, if, you, if what I've just said, you can identify as that, please hear this and be encouraged. The fact that you're still standing means everything to the Father. When the Father looks at you and sees all the trials you have gone through and sees that you're still standing, he is delighted in you. Surely that's something to count as great joy. So not only can we respond to our trials in joy, we can also uh, experience the full effect of our trials. I mentioned that last week I was in Donegal and uh, we climbed Errigal, which is a beautiful mountain. Um, and it's a pretty tough climb, right? It's not a very long climb, but it's tough, tough going. It starts off, uh, it's boggy. Um, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's just slow going because it's wet and, and, and sticky. And then you kind of go from that to the extreme opposite, which is just dry gravel and, um, and screed. Like, and every time you put your foot down, it's sliding down the mountain and there's boulders to climb over. It's really hard going. It's hard work. And, and, and about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way up, there's actually a false peak. Um, so you, you think, oh, that looks like the top. And then you get there, <laughs> and then you realize, oh, my goodness, there's another bit to climb. Um, and, and the point I'm trying to make is I could have stopped there, Right? I could probably even have deceived you all and took a photo and said, oh, I'm at the top. I could have stopped there because the view was nice. I'd already climbed up loads. Um, I could have just, at that point, turned around and, and walked back down the mountain and saved myself some effort and some discomfort. And our natural instinct uh, is to want to remove ourselves from trials and suffering as quickly as possible, isn't it? That's what we want to do. We, we think if we can just get out of whatever situation we find ourselves in, our lives are going to be better. We think, well, this is hard, therefore it must be bad. But James says, don't do this. Don't be too quick to run away from your suffering. Let your trials have their full effect. Let them do the work that God has intended for them to do. What is that work? Well, to put it simply, it's to make us more like Jesus. This is what he means when he says in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That simply means Christ-likeness. Being like Christ. You see, the only parts of our lives and character and thoughts and behavior that will last for eternity are the parts that are like Christ. Anything in your life that isn't like Christ, God is going to get rid of. Any part of your life that isn't Christ-like will not be in heaven. And so God, in his grace and mercy and love, uses the trials in our lives to remove everything that won't last. And he transforms us into creatures that will live in his presence forever. Trials are actually preparing you for heaven. We've already seen that, that we are his workmanship. God is, is like a sculptor with, with, a, with a block of stone. And a sculptor looks at a big block of marble and he has a vision for, for what that finished work of art will be. And so he starts chipping away and chipping away. And everything he chips off is not part of his finished work of art. And, and, and through the trials and pain and suffering and discomfort of our lives, our Father lovingly removes everything that isn't part of his final vision for us as his perfect work of art. 
even when we're experiencing the hardest of times that just don't seem to have an end, God is working to make us like Christ. See how this begins to be good news? You see our trials begin to make sense and, and be good? Even when we feel like we just can't go on anymore and we just cry out, Father, does it have to be so painful? Does it have to last this long? Father says to us, daughter, son, I know, I I know. Trust me, I love you and it's going to be worth it in the end. I'm making you more like Christ. I'm preparing you for an eternity of peace and joy and fulfillment in my presence. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, I've been dipping in over recently rereading it, and I think everybody should read that, by the way. Um, But C.S. Lewis, he he uses this image of a a house being renovated, and this is what he says. I'm just going to read it word for word because it's so good. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that these jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing a new wing out here, putting on an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought that you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. Isn't that just a beautiful image? I don't know what you have gone through or what you are going through or what you will go through, but I do know that through all the trials and pains and hardship, God is making you into a palace fit for the king of glory to live in. Surely this is a reason to count our trials as joy. Uh, This week, I've been listening to the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, because the old hymns are the best, quite frankly, in my opinion. And this is what it says in there, one of the verses that says, Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And here's the truth. We have a friend so faithful in Jesus who has shared in our suffering. See, actually, when trials come, we we often wonder why this bad thing is happening to us. It doesn't make any sense. But the truth is that Jesus' suffering is the only suffering that didn't make any sense. Because he was already perfect. He was already complete. Already lacking in nothing. There was no change that that had to happen to him. And yet, he carried our pain. He took our suffering. Isaiah 55 tells us that. Is borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is our friend. This is our Jesus. And so while we walk this path that will no doubt lead us into trials of all kinds, when we meet them, and we will, we can count it as joy because God is using them to make us more like this Jesus. And while we go through the dark times and the hard times and the heavy times, we know that Jesus has shared in our suffering. And we can bring it all to him. God has a vision for your life. A life of perfection and completeness where you will lack in nothing. 
Let's trust him. Let's experience the full effect of our trials and let's count it as pure joy. Because the king of heaven cares so much about us that he would be at work in our lives in this way, preparing us for glory, preparing us to be in his presence forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word that you've just spoken to us. I especially want to just bring before you right now anybody in this room or under the sound of my voice who is struggling in any way, who's going through pain or hardship, suffering or sorrow of any kind, sickness or mental ill health or anxiety, heartbreak, insecurity. Father, I pray that you would allow us to see these things as you gently working in our lives to make us more like Christ. Father, teach us how to have deep joy, a river flowing under a desert. Father, may we turn to you, may we trust in you, knowing that you are doing an immeasurable good in our lives. Help us, Lord, as we come to your table now to celebrate your death, remember your death, proclaim your death. We receive your meal. May, Lord, we receive your grace in a fresh way this morning. Remind us of what you have done, that you have carried our pain. You have taken our sorrows. Have a friend so faithful. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.